I'm not a big fan of gatekeeping knowledge. If you want to learn a skill, people shouldn't try to keep the education from you. Gatekeeping happens a lot in cannabis nowadays. It was less common before when we were all just criminals together. Now that there are some legal financial opportunities in cannabis, some folks have decided that cannabis can now be a win-lose sport instead of including everybody, and I'm not down with that. If you have ever considered introducing a male and female cannabis plant to each other to watch seeds be made and have your own pile of seeds to pheno-hunt, you should absolutely do that. Breeding is not hard at all. In fact, it is so easy, it happens on accident all the time. Don't let people tell you it is too hard or that you shouldn't do it. Now, that said, you don't become an elite breeder without years of work, studying, and looking at thousands of plants. But that isn't what you wanted to do, right? You just wanted to make some seeds. Make seeds. Save seeds. Share seeds with friends and especially patients. Open pollinate and preserve land races and share those too. I firmly believe in cannabis patient self-sufficiency and the plant wants you to make crosses, even bad ones. So this episode is for you. It's just some breeding basics, but it's really all you need to get going. And after you enjoy it, there are plenty of sources of advanced breeding best practices to refine your skills later. But get started now and have fun with it. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Brandon Potter. Brandon is co-founder of Mycophyte Solutions, a group of regeneratively-minded crop advisors providing professional services to cannabis and food agriculture. He is also on the cannabis breeding team at New Breed Seed in Oregon. Brandon earned a Master's of Science in Biology concentrating on both fungal endophytes and fungal pathogens at University of Wisconsin. During today's episode, we are talking about breeding your first cannabis plants, making your first cross. This episode will be a great primer for anyone considering making cannabis seeds for the first time and others who are just simply curious about the process. If you are especially curious about breeding cannabis, be sure to check out episode 92 with Caleb Inspecta and Ryan Lee Camira about breeding S1 seeds, then episode 71 with Daniel Morford on pollen collection, and episode 64 on female-only breeding with Ryan Lee Camira, and then all the way back to episode 24 to hear Mean Gene from Mendocino discuss cannabis breeding on the episode entitled The Keeper Plants. On today's episode, though, set one will focus on common motivations folks have to breed cannabis seeds, some of the clear opportunities there are for seed makers, and choosing whether to breed indoors or outdoors. The second set looks at choosing plants to cross, sifting for parents and ensuring pollination occurs, and then we wrap up the show in set three talking about the best time to harvest your seeds, curing, and storing your new beans. Welcome to Shaping Fire, Brandon. 
Hello, Shango. It's really great to be here. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time to join me. You know, um, I have been trying to put together this show for a while, but, you know, it really takes um, um, a, a particular kind of person to to do like an introductory show on breeding. You know, so many of the people in the scene who I'm friends with, um, uh, they may be advanced breeders, but they don't necessarily have um, the bringing it down to the basics for new folks level uh, or, or or really all that much teaching experience. And so um, when I got turned on to you just a, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, I mean, y- you you were kind enough to send me autoflower seeds that I grew this summer and that and that was great. but like I, I knew you just as a, as, a, as a seed guy, right? But um, when I had the opportunity to see your um, your interviews after the Autoflower Cup, um, I'm all like, oh, wow, this guy really can explain what he does. And that's when I looked you up and I found out like you had a you had a master's and you had been a great graduate assistant and you had been teaching, you know, biology. And I'm like, oh, th- you know, this is the guy that I'm looking for. And then and then, you know, we, we connected and you were exactly the guy who I thought you were. So anyway, I appreciate you bringing your skills to us so that, um, you know, people who are tuning into the show to get like a, like a, a, an easy, better understanding of how to start off growing your first, uh, or not just growing, but breeding your first cannabis variety, that, that this will be a, a good solution for them. So, so thank you for all of that. Thank you for all the compliments. And yeah, I really hope I can help some people today, maybe avoid some pitfalls and wasted time that I definitely got into when I first started making seeds. And it is so time consuming, right? It's so it's such a drag to to put in all that time and effort and like patience and then get all the way to the end and find out that like something you, you just screwed something up or something wasn't right and and then having to start over. So um you know, I I've only uh bred uh one time myself and it was for a very particular reason it was what like six seven years ago and at the when the cbd stuff was uh first starting to become uh more readily available uh and the seeds at the time you know you'd buy you know cbd seeds in a pack and and they didn't all breed they didn't all grow with cbd in them you know there it would be it was more like there are some cbd seeds in this pack so so you couldn't just like you know grow them all find your females clone them and then have a field of cbd because not all of those female plants had CBD in them. And and working with the patients here on Vashon Island, I, I could I couldn't just give out seeds to people that that they were gonna have to grow and then get tested before they knew that it even had CBD in it. That's not like setting them up for success, right? And so my first project was to make CBD seeds that were 18 to 1, but that every single female was going to show that CBD profile. And so, so, you know, I did that and gave away a bunch and then much to my surprise, sold a bunch. And, and that was awesome. What was your motivation for starting to breed cannabis? Um, Okay. Well, before, I just want to say I can totally relate to that problem. Back in 2013, I was 
the, the first CBD seed I could get was from Sohum Seeds. It was Har- Harlesu. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the pack just said most plants will be CBD dominant. It was really frustrating for me at the time because, I like, CBD Crew was releasing one-to-one seeds. So I knew that one of their parents had to be a, a, a CBD dominant true breeding line and they just weren't releasing it. So I appreciate your work doing that. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the first seed that I ever made, and I wouldn't, you know, this wasn't really breeding. Uh, it was just making seed to have more seed. Uh, and it was the, the first strain I ever grew, which was Twilight from Dutch Passion. And I just made seed with it. Um, I've actually never, I never grew any of the seed I made because I didn't like the strain. So that's one, uh, one pitfall to avoid. Don't make seed if you don't. Actually, <laughs> that's don't really make... funny to put in all that effort and then go like, I'm, I'm not happy with this. I'm going to move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, at the time it was like, I concurrently made the seed with the first grow of it. So it didn't really waste any time for me, but it was effort that, um, you know, if I knew that I didn't agree with the strain so much, I wouldn't have done. So, um, you know, it's interesting because, like, people grow for a lot of different reasons, right? I mean, there, of course, there's just fun, right? There's cannabis enthusiasts who just, you know, freaking love the plant and they want to do and try everything. And um, and then there's people who are, like, more in it for the science, right? They're, like, bot, bot, you know, botany-minded and they're all, like, I must... I must um, I must know all plants intimately. Um, then there are some people who do it in service to patients, which was kind of like where I was coming at it from is that I needed this for patients. Um, and then there's, uh, I think most people fall into one of the last two categories, which is to get something that they uniquely love um, or because they need to make some money, right? Mm-hmm. And and, um, and uh, I think that's uh, you know I think people generally fall into to those categories. When you decided that you wanted to dive in and um, you know really study it, take your take your you know you know botany and 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 soil and uh, biology backgrounds and really dive into cannabis. Um, you know, what were, what did you want to create with that? What was your goal? Um, and the reason why I'm asking you, I know that, I know the show isn't like about you, but, um, but what I'm hoping is, is that, um, the people who are listening to the show, who are thinking about getting into this or, or are considering it, maybe kind of giving them a little encouragement. Sure. Um, so I, I sort of always had an interest in cannabis. I didn't know that I would be in the industry necessarily, but um, it was a goal. And you, even I lived in the East Coast, usually in, you know, not friendly states. Uh, so I was growing black market back, back in like the early 2000s um, and all that while I was going through formal school for biology uh, and then I worked for the Forest Service for a little bit, and then I went back to grad school for uh, plant pathology, uh, focused on fungal pathogens, and all of that was kind of with back in the you know in the back of my mind. Well, this could be used for focusing on like a natural resource career with the Forest Service or uh, Park Service, or I could also do cannabis with this. And especially nowadays, if you're young and you have access to um, a lot of schools have cannabis-specific programs now or classes, uh, and it, even schools in unfriendly states are able to work with hemp and do really cool, uh, you know, 
genomic uh, cutting edge technology type stuff with it. So if I were just getting into it, I might uh, have focused more on that in my education. Um, but yeah, I, I always wanted to work with cannabis. I was always interested in breeding. I, I didn't really take many formal breeding classes. I really learned on the job since I've worked uh, with a cannabis breeder. And, you know, I had a background in gen genetics and uh, biology, but uh, practical plant breeding is uh, a much different thing than I had in my head at the time. Um, yes, it's, it's just much more directed than, you know, I, th I think evolutionarily a lot and uh, evolution still applies, of course, to plant breeding and artificial selection, but the numbers and how to achieve something on a human time scale are a lot different. Yeah, and the name of the game is opportunities, right? Because, uh, you know, you and I both got into breeding originally because we both saw the opportunity and the need uh, for to, to, to have a pack of seeds that CBD was expressed in every one of those seeds. And so that's what, you know, originally got you and I to start. But there's so many, you know, opportunities right now. Um, as somebody who's very involved with the, the cannabis breeding scene, what are the some of the opportunities, like the niches uh, that... that that are just dying to be filled right now? So there are a couple that I see. Um, so some of the first things beyond just making seeds for preserving and growing in the future, the first breeding programs that I also started on my own were uh, CBD programs where I was trying to get CBD dominant plants as well. And then I was also eventually trying to put CBD into autoflower plants. Uh, so the, Autoflower generally was a, a missing niche that I saw maybe 10 years ago, and that's being filled. But there's still a huge deficit in the quality and variety of autoflower plants. So that's still a really big um, open niche. A lot of people are moving into it. There's a lot of new growers that are just growing autoflowers. Um, and there are some great autoflower genetics, but you know people have only been working on autoflowers for the last... 20 years intensely, maybe 30, 40 years total as far as smokable flower goes. And they've been working on photo periods for thousands. So there's a lot that can be moved into out of flower to improve those still, just as uh, THC cultivars. Also, um, smokable hemp is turning out to be a smaller market than maybe I thought it was going to be a few years ago. But there's also a, a lot of um, potential and a missing market there. So I don't know how big of a market, but there is a lack of good smokable autoflower hemp. There's increasing amounts of good smokable uh, photoperiod hemp, but that's still, uh, you know, far below THC photoperiods uh, that are elites. Um, the other big market that's going to be a little harder for small-scale growers to compete with is the minor cannabinoid market. Yeah. So especially, you know, CBD, THC, are relatively easy to the inheritance patterns of them. They kind of function as one co-dominant co gene where you cross a THC dominant plant to a CBD dominant plant, they come out intermediate. You inbreed that generation and it's gonna segregate one to two to one where one, 25% uh, will be THC dominant, 50% will be intermediate, 25% will be CBD dominant. Uh, so that's a relatively easy, uh, test or um, gene to breed with for a home breeder. You still have to get that tested. You can bioassay it, I guess, and 
if you're not getting high off a plant, it's probably a pure CBD plant. Uh, but what's that term you like, just, what's that term you just used? Bioassay? <laughs> is, is that is, um, is that just like is that like kind of like a um, like a cute phrase for smoking it? Exactly. Right, yeah. I've not heard that. That's funny. All right, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I I actually heard that in reference to um, I think it was Andrew Weil and Gary Linkoff who was the Audubon uh, Mushroom Field Guy author, uh, they found some Gymnopolis spectabilis in Central Park in New York, and they reported it as active following a bioassay. Meaning, <laughs> meaning they, they just ate it, ate it and hoped that it went, yeah. went well. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so, uh, sorry, sorry I, 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 I interrupted you. You were, you were explaining how uh, some of the n- novel cannabinoids uh, are, are a target-rich environment, but, um, but uh, that's not just for everybody because of the analytics that are necessary. Yeah, it's, it's going to be hard to compete with some of the bigger players with, um, you know, like your like your neighbors at Oregon CBD seeds, right? Like they've right. got they, they've got a whole scientific setup there now for like intense analytical breeding. That's it's hard for a normal Joe to compete with that. Yeah, exactly. Especially at numbers to create a a plant that is not just that cannabinoid, but is a worthy agronomic plant to grow. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where I see the major uh, market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I totally, lapses right now. Yeah, I totally agree with you on both of those. And and you know, if I was getting into breeding right now, I would intentionally try to stay away from uh, the kinds of stuff that, um, um, like, the big companies with deep pockets and scientific teams were working on. Because you know, the long and the short of it is that uh, unless it's your passion, um, all those companies are going to get that stuff done first and Mm -hmm. um you know you don't really it's it's really hard to compete with folks like that um whereas uh you know and anybody can for example um i agree with you the autoflowers are continuing to be more and more um predominant for home growers and patients and uh and competing with um with light depth. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities in autoflowers and also for uh, atypical terpenes, for example, like menthol, mm-hmm. right? Like, sure, there, there's some plants that have got menthol, but, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot. And there are a lot of other flavor prof- terpene profiles um, that are as fringe as menthol that, that people can find and, and, and just run with. And, um, I think that is something that uh, is more about uh, uh, you know having a decent size sift and putting the time to smell and then and then focusing like you can you can get to that with with backyard or or bedroom breeding a lot easier than you're going to be able to create a, a freaking THCV dominant strain. Mm-hmm. And in in some ways, even though those are inherited in complex multi-genetic fashion uh, something like a terpene profile it, there is a limit to the scalability simply because one, some of these large firms can't smell every plant and can't take care of every plant in a way that really gives you a good idea of what the terpene uh, profile or the the aroma profile is going to be at the end of the cure so it, even if they have all the geno- genomic data and they know exactly what base pairs are in that plant we don't really have the phenotype data of what genes are associated with different terpene profiles. So that's an area where home growers are still very competitive 
something like disease resistance can also, even though it's very complex, and for known genes, the big players are going to have an advantage. If you have a plant that you observe to be resistant, um, you know that's something you can observe at home, even if it's a you know complex uh, trait. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, these these companies that are doing uh, huge, huge, huge grows of thousands of plants, um, they are totally not going to have the staff and the labor to be able to go and sniff all the plants to find out, you know, what they have that special. And um, that really uh, does create a, a stronger position for the home growers. Um, another another uh, opportunity that I think there is is for short flowering plants, and 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 I, and I mean short flowering photos that are under like let's say fifty two days, um, because as we know, when when those of us in um, well, let's just say those of us who are not in California, right? Um, we we buy these seeds and we get California seeds, and and you know if you're going to grow them indoors, that's one thing because you can pretend California in your bedroom. But if you're going to grow outdoors, um, California seeds don't just thrive, or they don't thrive just anywhere because most of us have got um, you know other. Other kinds of weather. I mean, I mean, I'm an extreme example here on Vashon Island, where um, you know our our plants start flowering around August 15th. So an eight weeker is going to be like October 15th, and like I'm two and a half to three weeks into my rain season at that point. Like, there's no chance I'm going to finish anything from California in Western Washington. And so, um, so I look for very short things like the, uh, like there's a bunch of under 55 day stuff from Humboldt seed company where, you know, they may just barely be that where I live versus California, but, um, but there's no doubt that they're short and that's a great opportunity too. I mean, if somebody could, if somebody could get a reliable, great terpene pro, profile 45 dayer um i think it'd be a huge breakthrough yeah i, I agree and that there's um you know increasingly i'm seeing people selling what they call fast photos which are a photo period crossed with an auto flower uh so they will be they'll function as photo periods you can veg them you can take clones but that auto is either speeds up its flowering time and or it triggers earlier from uh diminished light. Uh, so it has a longer critical night period than uh, a pure photo period. I actually haven't plant. come across those yet. I want to come across that myself. The idea to have a, um, a, a, uh, a fast flower that I can clone is very attractive to me. Yeah, I think that Humboldt Seed Company uh, has some like that. Hmm. Um, hmm. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to start using that keyword. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we, we, you know, we've we've kind of established like a whole bunch of different reasons that people breed and what some of the opportunities are. Um, let's uh, let's talk a bit about uh, space and materials um, because there, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And anybody who tells you that there's only one way to breed, um, they're just kind of full of themselves because there's lots of way to do this. Um, would you go ahead and uh, just kind of like. Uh, describe and compare um, what your thoughts are uh, about breeding indoors versus breeding outdoors. It's going to depend on what your final goals are to some extent and what your situation is. You can do either. Uh, if your goal is to produce a plant that's being grown outdoors, then there are benefits to growing outdoors. And you can also 
grow outdoors and indoors where you're breeding a cycle outdoors and then breeding indoors over the winter or some combination like this. Um, of course, indoors is more accessible to more people. Uh, but a- again, it depends on what your uh, final goals are. And there's there's different ways you can tweak your breeding scheme and methodology to uh, buffer against some of the negatives for either situation. Uh, so, um, yes, both can be done. I, I don't know that there's an inherent benefit. It just depends on what your end goals are. To what degree do you think it's important to breed in the same environment where the seeds are going to be grown? Um, I think it's fairly significant, especially for outdoor varieties. Um, like I'll give an example where uh, we have worked with some autoflowers that are bred in Oregon, where the they're grown outdoors in the summer usually, uh, when, during the dry period, so like July to late August. And the weather during that period is usually 80s to 100 during the day lately, <laughs> Uh, and then it still drops to, you know, 40 to 60 at night. So you get this cool night period. Well, those same autos, when they were grown in the Midwest, ended up really short. And one of the things we kind of theorize is that they're responding to um, basically heat units. So because it's still hot in the night in the Midwest, their metabolism is sort of, sort of still running and they're aging in a way. Mm. but they're not actively elongating and growing in the same way that they do uh, in Oregon. Um, so there's definitely environmental effects that can have like unforeseen or significant consequences on how the plant reacts, uh, depending on where you're growing it. Of course, for indoor breeders, those are, you know, the differences are going to be minor. Well, there still will be some de- between and among different indoor grow setups, but it's going to be a much more significant effect when you take an indoor outdoor or vice versa. That's an interesting idea about the the hot nights. I think you may have just uh, solved something that happened to me. Um, earlier this summer, I was um, running a, a specialty autoflower indoors, which I normally just run them outdoors. But I was doing it indoors, and it 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 was a uh, it was like a really squat plant. It didn't stunt, but it it stopped at about eighteen inches, and it was heavy. I mean, it was heavy for eighteen inches, but mm-hmm. I didn't understand why it it didn't um, get the height that. I was expecting and other people did well it was it was indoors and it was hot in this this spring here and my my nights were hot and i bet you that um those those additional heat units um kept them surprisingly small because it was so hot in the evening so i i had never heard of that analysis before so it could be something you know not necessarily how i described it like there there is a technique called temperature diff in greenhouses where they uh, affect the height of greenhouse plants by raising the temperature in the morning for a certain period of time, and plants will react physiologically to things like that. So um, it could be either or both of those things. And I've, I've seen, similarly, I've seen a plant, an autoflower that was bred outdoors in Oregon or in greenhouses, and uh, it was grown indoors under 24 hours of light. It ended up about a foot tall, like branched, like six branches, and each branch had about a two liter nug on it, just to the soil. It, it does not look like that. You, normally, you know, it's a four or five foot plant with normal size 
uh, buds and structure. So they definitely are reacting differently. Um, so let's talk about the advantages in space between indoor and outdoor. So um, indoor is, of course, great. There's lots of great reasons for it, for, for privacy and control of your environment, and maybe you're breeding for indoor plants because that's what you want to provide to people. Um, but also outdoor is great because you've got, you know, if you, if you don't live in the city, you may well have uh, unlimited space. And so you can do a more significant, um, you know, run with with you know to produce more seeds at one time um i was talking to uh, to uh, dan jimmy um at um at uh, Nome Automatics, and he's all like when when he wants to bring something to market um he's looking to produce 30,000 seeds of it and i'm like holy crap that's a, that's a lot of um that's a lot of moms and a, and a lot of processing those uh, those seeds and so um you know, depending on what your particular needs are as the breeders, that's really going to influence whether or not you choose to grow indoor or outdoor. It's 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 not just one variable. It's probably you know eight or ten or twelve variables that you have to decide which is right for you. Yes, totally. And that's it's, a lot of these questions. We have to start with where your goal is. Are you just breeding for yourself for home? Are you trying to produce commercial quantities, things like that? And that will change. Uh, you know, how you approach the project to begin with. What do you think about, um, um, you know, a lot, a lot more people are breaking up indoor space into subspaces by using grow tents uh, versus just, you know, using an entire room, like a grow room. They might take their garage and put, you know, you know, four or six, you know, tents in there and treat them as individual spaces. I, I think that's a pretty novel approach to to turn one room into six rooms. And they're doing this for breeding? Yeah, they're doing this for breeding. Okay, so I think it's valid as long as you meet a certain uh, pollen control uh, threshold. So especially cannabis pollen, it's wind pollinated. It moves around really easily. Uh, so... I've seen people doing this where they're filtering, usually through uh, a MERV filter. I, I think anything rated above a 9 will work for pollen, but probably uh, an 11 to 13 is better. And then they'll have them under positive pressure blowing in clean filtered air. The problem is if you have a bunch you know, right next to each other, you also want to be filtering the outlet air with the same filter um, or higher. And then... Uh, with grow tents, they're usually sewn together. So if you have any holes in that tent, pollen will be escaping out of those holes. Uh, you can, you know, tape them up, or I've seen heat-sealed tents where there aren't uh, any uh, holes in the seals. Um, but it, it, anytime you open that tent as well, you're going to be exposing the rest of the tents to pollen. So there are, there are ways to manage that. Uh, you can build tents where there's irrigation into the tents, and you once the pollen starts to drop, you close the tent, you never open it until it's harvested. Um, so that's one way to prevent co pollen contamination. Uh, another way, you know, that's for producing pretty much uh, commercial quantity seed lots, though, if you're devoting a whole tent to it. If you're just breeding, you can do uh, pollen bags or an individual... Uh, branch pollination, probably with just as much control over pollen contamination. 
Uh, and, you know, if you're not opening the tents, that's different. You have a situation where they're uh, completely sealed. That's the ideal situation. But if, if you have bro tents and there's these, you know, pinholes all over the seams and things like that, well, that might still work broadly, but you're going to have a certain amount of pollen contamination from one to the other, uh, especially if you're opening and going tent to tent. And you can minimize that with spraying water and things like that. But cannabis pollen is is very movable. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and and I and I think for most po- folks, uh, you know, they're they're probably going to start with their their one tent and their one project, and then after they have success, and they give some seeds away to patients, and they sell some, uh, you know, to you know friends or online or something, uh, and they were like, oh hell, I think I want to, I think I want to do this some more. Well, you know, okay, so so maybe now you you get a couple more tents, but you're going to spend some of that money you made to get some like really nice tents right so I've, I've had a bunch of really mediocre to crappy tents and then I, I and then I you know gorilla sent me a tent and I'm like oh crap this is um this is a whole different level than the other tents I've been using. And, you know, if I was doing this, I'm certainly, you know, not pushing, you know, saying that people need to use gorilla tents. I'm just saying that there are different uh, grades of tents. And, and as, as somebody decides to take this more seriously, if they choose to, they will probably upgrade their gear to be on par with their level of interest. Yes. I I would say that's valid. If you're producing a tent full of, seed though that's a lot of seed like you said thirty thousand uh seeds for a commercial lot uh from dan that's you know you could do that in a 10 by 10 area with i you know i'm used to producing seed outdoors but probably a thousand um maybe 1500 watts uh could easily produce that much seed yeah i agree with you on that um but if you're you know if you're if, if you've gotten to the point that there's one well i I, i'm I'm pretty sure that uh one tent can grow to be five tents pretty fast when somebody's got the bug um so you you said that most of the time that you are breeding um it's outdoors um let's talk a little bit about uh doing that responsibly um uh i have i I have no idea what process you use but but the the main thing i want to hit on is uh folks that just let their pollen go like into the air wild um especially if they are in uh neighborhoods right um it's it's been very challenging here on vashon island We, we you know we we did an education campaign here um and uh we're not running into it as much as we did say in like 2015, but in 2013, 14, 15 times, um, we had people that were just putting a male plant with some female plants in their yard. And, you know, our whole Island is only like 14 miles long. And, um, you know, with enough people letting pollen, you know, go on the Island, all sorts of cross contamination was happening. And, You know, patient gardens got ruined by being seeded because they didn't know that their neighbor at the end of the block was letting pollen just like just like like raw dogging it out into the out into the air. And so, you know, I, I definitely discourage people from just letting like males go. Um, but you know, you're doing this at a professional level. Um, uh, you know, are you, are you, is that how you guys do it with the pollen or, or I imagine that you have more pollen control even outdoors, um, 
where you're where you're applying it in a more controlled way. I don't know though, and 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 so I'll, I'll leave that up to you to explain. There are pollen isolation distances for like commercial seed production if you're going to do an outdoor uh, production of seed, which I'm talking like many many acres of seed production. Uh, otherwise, you know, all the breeding that we do and what I would do outdoors is uh, the plants are bagged. So usually we do all female breeding. And so we're partially reversing plants to self them. And those plants are bagged before any pollen is dropped. So they never release pollen openly. It's just onto themselves inside the bag. And similarly, if we're doing, say, a production, we will have it in a pollen isolation, like I described earlier with a um, filtered inlet and outlet. And then once they start producing pollen, they don't get opened again. So we're not we're not just releasing pollen. Um, and if, you, if you're doing something like a backyard, and this is another thing, like you really need to know what your goals are. Why is someone leaving a male out there just, you know, continuously poly- pollinating his female or their female? Um, you know, how many seeds are they trying to produce? You don't need much pollen to produce a lot of seed. Uh, so if you're going to do a select pollination in your backyard, I would have that male in a closet or in some, you know, you can do it in a little greenhouse, uh, something like that. And personally, when I have a single male at home like this and it's not bagged, I remove all of the any uh, forming male flowers before they drop pollen until the female is ready to receive pollen. And then I'll let the males develop, collect that pollen or pair them in the closet, bring the female inside, let them, you know, uh, have sex with each other, and then I kill the male immediately. Uh, so, so doing something like that, or a, a more controlled pollination, if you're trying to get a big lot of seed, then I, if you can, try to bring the females to the male in an enclosed space, and you can let them hang out for a couple of days, even in the dark, uh, just to get pollinated and then kill the male. Or you could do it a couple times, you know, bring them in at night and just shake that male all over them, take them out again. Um, and you could keep the male for a couple weeks, do that, and then kill the male whenever it's done. Yeah, I like that idea. And and I think the moral of the story is, is, a, is like, you know, the, there there's no way in one show that we are going to be able to cover all variables everyone might consider for making their first they're making their first cross. What we're trying to get across is that there are a lot of ways to do this and make sure you do your homework and try not to be irresponsible with your pollen. I think that's kind of like the generally the point. Yeah, totally. And if you're just letting your male out there pollinate everything, you're also only doing, you're limiting yourself to one pollination uh, project a year as well. Yeah, that's true because your entire property is going to be covered with that one pollen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. At least twelve that's alive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right on. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and take our first short break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about um the this new vocabulary people are using about biointelligent seeds. So, um you are listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is crop advisor Brandon Potter. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. 
Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, Fast Buds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hembra cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit HembraGenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. 
And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agricultural Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is crop advisor, Brandon Potter. So before the break, we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the things to consider uh, when deciding whether or not you were going to breed indoors or outdoors. And um, while people can certainly breed in any kind of a substrate, there is this interesting discussion that's been going on the last few years about biointelligent seeds. And uh, the idea with biointelligent seeds is that they are grown in soil and seeds that are grown in soil um, have got a different biological makeup and they know what to do when they are presented uh, soil again. And, you know, at the beginning, when I first heard that, I'm like, that's a really cool idea being a living soil guy like I am. I said, but I really don't know what the what the reasons would for that would be like, a, like a seed's a seed. Um, but then last episode, um, when we were talking with uh, Jeff Lowenfels about endophytic bacteria, well, this is where the whole case for biointelligent seeds, I think, starts because um, the idea that there is endophytic bacteria, which if you haven't listened to that show yet, is um, bacteria that spends some a part of it, of some part of its life cycle in the cannabis plant. It's interesting to find out that the, these 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 endophytic bacteria will. Um, uh, come up through the roots into the plant and enter a newly forming seed. And there is, um, oh, I forget what it's called, but it's, it's another type of bacteria, uh, which means that it is bacteria from the neighboring environment that lands on the flower and so, and it gets folded into the seeds, um, from the branch. And so these seeds are going to be all packed up with the bacteria that it, that the seed's going to need wherever it goes, which makes it a more reliable, and people are using this term, biointelligent seed. And I'm very attracted to that. Um, what are your thoughts on, on uh, seeds that are grown in living soil versus more inert mediums like cocoa or something? So I definitely agree and am intrigued by uh, the interactions that are going on with the environmental uh, organisms and the seed and how they can pass from the environment to the seed and uh, back. Uh, 
I am more familiar with fungal interactions in that way because fungi also form endophytic relationships within a plant body, including some within the seed. Uh, but I am learning more about the bacterial uh, cycles, the rhizophagy, uh, and things like this. And there are also, of course, bacteria within the plant body um, of the of the seed. So it's in the embryo of the seed. There's also, you know, a, a plethora of things on the seed coat. Um, so one of the previous practices are, is often to be like, oh, put your plants, uh, your seeds in hydrogen peroxide or bleach water. And I, I would really only do that if you think there's a pathogen on the seed coat. Uh, so there's definitely going to be differences in the population that are colonizing seeds that are grown in organic substrates and, and living soil and things like this compared to uh, cocoa or more sterile media. Uh, there's still, you know, I, I say sterile media, nothing is sterile. There's definitely organisms in there as well. Their population is going to be different than a different media. Um, different types of organisms, maybe uh, species, as well as total population density. Uh, you know, I haven't seen specific numbers on this, but in general, I would assume uh, or expect that living soil is going to have higher diversity and more likely to have beneficial organisms, uh, but not necessarily. You could also, you know, pathogens and uh, latent pathogens can also uh, get into the seed. Uh, even botrytis can form an endophytic infection in a cannabis plant, uh, potentially, and not show symptoms and even get into the seed. Or the plant, the mother plant may have cannabis on the buds, and there will be botrytis on the seed coat mostly, but some of the seeds may also be uh, internally effect infected. And that's going to be cultivar and pathophar specific on whether or not that's happening. But um, so my point is that, yes, there's going to be a lot of potential beneficial relationships that we can exploit and how you produce the seed will affect that. Um, but it's also a pathogen risk that these organisms are in there. So one thing to say about, at least for uh, endophytic fungi of the aerial parts of the plant, so this is the parts of the plant that are going to be producing the seed and will um, potentially uh, provide the inocula to colonize the seed. Um, those fungi are usually uh, acquired horizontally from the environment. So it's not just your soil, it's where you're growing the plant. If you're growing that plant under... Uh, a canopy of a certain tree, you're going you might you're going to expose it to a different uh, potential population of endophytes than if you grew it indoors or under a different species of canopy tree, uh, something like that. So there, it's hard to predict which one's going to be most beneficial because this is all so new. We uh, don't really know how to manipulate it in that secondary way from environmental manipulation to help inoculate the seed with the proper microorganisms. We are gaining some knowledge of, oh, this is my microorganism is beneficial and we can inoculate uh, the plant perhaps while it's growing the seed or the seed um, post-harvest uh, to help it get that organism associated with it. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot unknown about it. I, in general, the bigger the diversity, the more diverse uh, the population of microbes are, the more resilient and more likely you will have beneficial symbionts in there with it. Uh, yes.
Right on. I it's think, not guaranteed. Yeah, right on. A very, very, very good point. And you know, this whole idea of um, of, of bacteria and uh, uh, fungus that is that is on board a seed. You know, this is this is brand new science, and it is really strange to consider the idea that uh, different seeds from the same mother plant will have different. Um, you know, endophytic bacteria in it uh, because of where it is on the plant. And then when that those seeds are germinated, um, that is a um, th- that bacteria expresses itself differently in different ways in the different plants. So um, I'm going to use the word pheno, even though it's not appropriate, but but people will understand what I mean. We're always talking about different phenos in one seed run. Um, and, and what we're realizing now is like, yeah, there are those different um, uh, variety expressions within the seed run, but now it's even more complex because each seed is going to have onboarded different endophytic bacteria depending on where it was in the plant. And us trying to figure out how influential that is, that opens up a whole bunch of new doors. You mentioning making seeds under the canopy of a particular plant, um, you know, or a tree or something. We may find out that the 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 fungus that's you know being dropped from these plants in its own pollen that's in the air might also be influencing our cannabis plants, and that's just like a whole new brave new world. Yeah, and and the way some of these organisms are inherited by the plant are some of them are passed from the parent to the seed and that's vertical transmission some of them are acquired from the environment during the plant's life cycle which would be horizontal transmission as some plants are more prone to acquiring um, their endophytic partners and some lean towards systemic uh, vertical transmission of them so something like a there's a lot of grass endophytes that are passed uh, parent to offspring and I'm really not sure where cannabis lies along that continuum. If you can, uh, you know, if you take a variety and it has a certain microbiome associated with its internal seed, you grow that a couple times. Is it keeping that through generations? This is something I'm unclear of for cannabis. Uh, and it might be, you know, maybe some of the organisms are kept and some of them are lost. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of work to do. I. There's a potential here, too, for a scientist, if they can figure out a stably inherited, uh, you know, microbe that they can sell to breeders or seed producers to improve their their existing varieties. That's, uh, you know, definitely a marketable product for someone, if that's possible. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting idea. In fact, they actually do that for grasses. There are endophyte inoculated grasses, usually fungal endophytes. because grass endophytes often have a toxin that is poisonous to livestock. So they've developed these endophytes that are symbionts with the grass. They help reduce insect herbivory, but they don't poison the livestock. Right on. All right. So let's uh, let's uh, cycle ourselves back um, uh, off the theory and back on to uh, checking these boxes for the the new grower. So 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 you know the the the, the new breeder rather. So the breeder knows why they want to grow and they've got an idea of of what they want to breed and they've figured out whether or not they're going to do it indoor and outdoor and how they're going to control their pollen and um, and so now they're actually like choosing their 
plants, right? And and the actual characteristics. Now, um, you know, for for an advanced breeder who are who are going to go um, many generations, this can get confusing very quickly. But what I'm going to ask you is that if if we're just talking about the first time somebody is making a cross, and so they are going to be looking for a, a male that they like, and they are looking for um, a female or poten- potentially a group of females that they like um, to just get this what I'll call F1. Um, what are some of the plant characteristics that you recommend that a first-time breeder look at um, when considering their males and females? So, again, you're going to have to start with whatever the breeding goal is. Uh, and you might have certain goals that are, you know, required checks that you have to mark off and some other that are negotiable. And there might be traits that come up in your program as you move along that you, you know, reprioritize that list. Um, but in in general, for small-scale growers, um, it, it, one of the... Okay, so the first decision you have to make is are you doing regular seeds or feminized seeds? If you um, are doing regular seeds, I actually generally advise against choosing a single male. To choose a single male properly, you would want to create a bunch of test crosses with a bunch of different males and pick pick the male that actually passes on the genes that you want, which is uh, quite a bit of work. You, that's how a large-scale breeder might do it, but for a home breeder, that's a lot of work that's, uh, I think, might be better spent moving forward in generations as either a half-sib population where you're selecting the female that you can get a good read on the characteristics from and you're using a group of males. Um, or you could do, uh, you know, most, traditionally people do pedigree breeding where they're picking one male to one female. And, and the risk with that is if you pick the wrong male, you send your line down the wrong road. If you're buffering that with a group of males and you're picking based on characteristics you know are present in the female, uh, it's going to take longer. But uh, long term, you might be more likely to reach a product without having to go back and start again. Um, but it, so for characteristics that I would look for in either a male or female, one, you want to have whatever characteristics you're breeding for should be present in both if possible, or you're planning on working more generations to get it uh, standardized. Uh, but general vigor, you know, uh, disease resistance, things like that, on top of, you know, most people will be selecting for terpene, structure, resin, uh, potency, things things like that will be in most people's selection list. Um, so yeah. in your example, when you have uh, multiple males, um, in that example, you're going to have multiple males and multiple females. Or are you trying to hit one female with multiple males and then you're going to you're going to sift and search the, the seeds that that one female uh uh, puts out. I've I've never I've not heard this uh, multiple males uh, approach unless people were trying to uh, like do an open pollination and um, you know preserve preserve a line that might be lost or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I like to work on a population basis. 
especially for early early generations of lines before I start inbreeding. Uh, but so basically, why I I, I lean against single males? I, I, you let's see how how should I explain this? <laughs> um, Okay, so when you do a selfing, you're increasing the homozygosity to the next generation by 50%. If you do a full sieve mating, so a male to a female or one female to a separate female, you're increasing it by 25%. And then it goes down half if you're doing a half sieve mating where you're picking uh, one select female mother plant out of a population of males that pollinated it. So it's the slowest form of breeding in that respect, but you're moving the line forward in a more general way. Whereas if you're doing the the more specific inbreeding types of breeding that are more traditional, say full sieve is most traditional um, for cannabis or selfing is a lot more common now, you're moving it towards homozygosity a lot faster but to screen the amount of lines to get the exceptional plants will be uh, more difficult. You have to plant larger populations. You're more likely to take a step down an inbred line that isn't the good step. Um, so it's not that multiple males is better than doing it that way, but for a home breeder or a small scale breeder, that's the technique I would lean towards, more of like an open pollinated variety uh, uh, production method rather than inbreeding. When you inbreed, you're generally producing parent lines to make hybrids out of. And and that is going to be much more difficult for a home breeder to produce exceptional hybrids than, you know, someone with a really large operation. So um, I know that some people resist going about their breeding projects because they don't believe that they have got like a lot of room um, for large sifts. I mean, we we all idealize large sifts, and and in a and and in a perfect world where you've got lots of time, labor, and space, that's awesome. Um, but. You know, when when a when a new breeder says to me, "Oh, I I would really like to cross this and this, but you know, I don't really have all that much um, all that much room for a lot of plants," or you know, or I usually just say, "Just do it, dude or person." You know, just 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 go ahead and do it and get your first one done. You don't have to. You know, you can always get better. As, as new projects come about for you and then and then after your original cross if you're going to start inbreeding well then then you can fine-tune it there um, you talk about a lot of these different variables that we want to control for but but Am I right that, that that controlling for all these variables is really about getting more and more sophisticated and if you've got you know, your male line that you like and your female line that you like, just get them in the same damn like space and l let nature do its thing. Like you don't have to overthink this. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this comes back to what your goals are. If you just want to make, say you want to make seed to have seed to pheno hunt for the rest of your life, you could do that in one grow. And if you have two lines that you like, you, you know, smash them together, you have seed 
and you can either move forward generational with that seed or just pheno hunt that seed forever. And for that, you know, especially if someone just wants, oh, I just want a bunch of dank seed and have it forever, you could get two elite female clones that you know you like, put them together, and other people would start a seed company for that. And that's very easy if you have access to those original genetics to do. But if you have two lines that you like, uh, you know, absolutely don't don't put barriers up for yourself. Um, it, it just just get it done, make the seeds, and see what you end up with. Uh, there's a lot of different directions you could take that as well. If you if you are an indoor grower and you have those plants uh, on hold, you can do back cross breeding type things if you're selecting for certain traits in one of the parents, uh, or you can inbreed, or you can just grow that seed forever. So we 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 now are talking about being in a situation where we have we have chosen our um, you know either one or now uh, I'm liking your case for multiple males and um, you've got your one or multiple females depending on what your goals are and what your um, you know how much space you have. Um, what do you do about the the pollen from dropping from the male when the female is ready for it, right? Because, um, you know, you, since you're going to be bringing together two different varieties, um, you know, it's entirely likely that the male is going to be ready at a different time as the female. And I've not run into this since I've I've only done this once. Um, I just I just put them next to each other and I got lucky. Um, would you speak to this idea of of having the pollen drop at the right time? Um, and and you'll probably end up tying this back into the show to um, your idea for just just maybe bagging some of the branches to collect it and put it on later, but just kind of speak to this idea to the male and female being ready at different times, <laughs> which unfortunately so, happens with humans too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, hopefully you have some background on how long your plants are going to flower or something like that. Uh, generally I would start the male first because even if it's ready first, it, it'll produce pollen for a certain you know window of time and you can get your female uh, ready in that time, or you can save the pollen. Uh, generally, females, you know, people like to hold the pollen off of them until they're, you know, if you have an eight-week flower, maybe week three, so that it has enough uh, stigmas to produce a good seed yield. If you pollinate earlier than that, it'll be fine. You just might get a lower seed yield. Uh, your seeds might be bigger. Um, you could also have the female and male together the whole time, and it'll eventually produce new flowers that's fine as well. You just have some different seed ages. Um, so as far as the best way to pollinate, uh, you know, if you can get your male dropping flowers at the great right time or a little bit before that, and you hold your male in a separate area until you want to pollinate, that is ideal. Um, if you have to save pollen, I personally try to avoid saving pollen. It's, it's always been hit or miss for me. Uh, but you can get the pollen collected, remove any flower material from there, and save it with desiccant in uh, the freezer. And that should last theoretically a long time. I have never pushed it because saving pollen has always not worked out well for me. It always uh, get better seed production when it's fresh. Um, similarly, like a feminized uh Pollen producers especially sometimes have trouble dropping the pollen out of the anthers. So you can collect the entire 
their flowers, dry the flowers, and then kind of grind them up, and the pollen will fall out, and then apply that by hand. Uh, that works all right. I, it's always preferable that the pollen just drops, and it's less work, and everything works out all right. Um, but usually I would just uh, get rid of the male as soon as you pollinate, unless you're leaving it in a tent or something like that and letting it go until harvest. Yeah, I agree with you about saving pollen. Uh, I have found that most of the time when I've done that, um, it gets it gets moist and rots, or it, it starts to clump on the female flower when I go to apply it. So, um, you know, this is you know, in retrospect, this is pretty cheesy. But um, when I when I did my cross, I literally wrapped the male into the the female plants um, and put them on a. Um, uh, on on my deck in a uh, in a tent and just uh, you know let them let them do it and, um, naturally and I got lucky because I didn't have to save it um, but you know there's a lot of people who save pollen successfully and there are certainly ways to do it um, but uh, you know since we're talking about somebody doing this for their first time um, we want to try to continually keep this as as simple as possible. Um, where in the in the process do you normally add the pollen to the female plant? And when and when I say process, I mean like where in the in the flowering cycle do you want to um, um, you know encourage the pollen uh, immediately as soon as you start to see pistils, or do you, do you want to wait until the flowers are are more mature? Uh, so generally, I would wait until the flowers are a little more mature. However, it, depending on your situation, if there is potential for, say, pollen contamination, you might want to get that pollen all over the branch or plant that you're making so that if there is a few pollen grains from a you know fiber hemp grow a couple miles away blowing around, you've already fully pollinated with your plant, uh, with your preferred pollen source uh, to limit uh, potential contamination. Otherwise, I would wait until there's a little more flower and you, and you get better seed yields. Right on. So um, how do you know that you have effectively pollinated your plants? A lot of first-time uh, breeders, you know, they'll, they'll either, you know, add the pollen themselves or put them near each other and they're hoping for it. And then, and then because, you know, they don't have a lot of experience, they're all like, did it, did it do it? You know? So what are, what are the first visual signs that the plant has um, accepted the pollen successfully? Yeah. Sometimes it can be hard to tell. Um, it, and generally the first things that you'll see is that the pistils kind of start to turn brown. This can also just happen by touching them. So if you touched them, it might just turn brown because you touched them. <laughs> but it's, it's, it kind of becomes distinctive once you get an eye for it. It's like a certain way that the, the pistil shrivels back. And then pretty soon, within a week maybe, you can see uh, the ov- ovule start to develop into a seed. Uh, through the bract at what point like um will they start to see seeds form like i know that we'll talk more about how long to let the seeds to run and and mature during the uh, down the line in this conversation um but when will they start seeing the the green uh very young seeds um start to form it's a little bit plant dependent depending how like uh the structure of their bracteal that's surrounding what's going to become the seed. Uh, but as as soon as a week, I can see them sometimes. And they usually appear white at first, and the pistils still are attached. Uh, 
you kind of can see them poking out sometimes. Um, you know, you hit on feminized seeds uh, briefly, and I want to go back to that for one moment. So, you know, this show is not about, uh, you know, breeding or, you know, making feminized seeds and their importance. Uh, we've done that on other shows. But but I would just like you to speak to the idea of, of the first-time breeder considering whether or not they want to make feminized seeds. Just walk us through, like, you know, what those considerations might be for the first-time breeder. Yeah, so there's definitely positives and negatives. The the first positive for a growing female-only, like a female-only breeding project, is that you're getting a read on both sides of whatever cross you're going to make. So you can make more effective selections. Uh, The the major drawback to feminized seed, especially for home producers, is that it's less reliable and that some some plants don't reverse as well and you're more likely to have a pollen failure you can have a nicking failure where like you know especially you mentioned earlier about getting the male flowers at the right time as the female is ready you know if you have a short flowering indica and you're trying to cross that to a long flowering tropical variety uh, you might want to have the short flowering variety be the pollen donor, or you're going to have to flower that long flowering variety far before the short flowering variety. Cause you could, you know, you could trigger a tropical variety and it doesn't produce pollen for another eight weeks. Meanwhile, the other plants done. Um, so with feminized seed, you're more likely to get a, a pollen failure. Like I mentioned, where either you're going to have to put extra work into collecting the flower and helping that pollen escape, uh, or it just doesn't produce very viable pollen and you get lower seed yields. Uh, So, and you don't want to be, if you're having a long-term breeding project, if you're having pollination issues from the beginning, that's a red flag. Uh, So some varieties are going to be better as regular varieties for, for breeding because of that uh, for home breeders um, or seed, seed producers. Uh, But as far as functionality, like, you know, feminized seed isn't genetically modified or anything like that as, far as I'm aware, there is no functional difference in the plants that are grown from it. You can breed female uh, feminized seed to regular seed. You can breed feminized seed only for generations. That's fine. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are the major drawback I see about feminized seed is pollen production. And you have to understand at least some about the technology of how to reverse a plant, which is pretty accessible nowadays. All right, um, so let's go ahead and take our second uh, short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, judging when to uh, collect the seeds and uh, harvest them, handling them, and, and, and prepping them for whatever you're going to do next. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is crop advisor Brandon Potter. Once you've discovered the benefits of using cannabis, it's a very small step to start making your own edibles, gummies, lotions, tinctures, and concentrated oils at home. Magical Butter has been helping cannabis consumers become self-sufficient for over a decade. With the easy-to-use Magical Butter Countertop Botanical Extractor, you can create high-quality cannabis products to your exact specifications at a fraction of the cost of store-bought edibles. I talk a lot on this show about the importance of home growing so you don't have to rely on others to feel healthy. Well, the Magical Butter Machine can empower your personal health by putting you in control of how you use cannabis in your daily life. 
I've been making my own butters and oils on the stove for years, and I much prefer the ease of using the magical butter machine. I just set it and walk away. With the simple touch of a button, the magical butter machine grinds, heats, stirs, and steeps your herbal extract all at the correct time interval and temperature for the perfect infusion every time. As a result, you achieve your desired infusion easily, safely, and consistently. Check out the Magical Butter Instagram to see the machine in action. And don't feel like you have to go it alone. There is a huge community on Facebook called Magical Butter Users United, sharing recipes and best practices so you can learn at your own pace from others who are already doing it successfully. Now is the time to get your own Magical Butter machine and save money while enjoying cannabis. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, to get 10% off. Visit MagicalButter.com today. One of the challenges with buying autoflower seeds is that often you'll have as many different phenos as you will have seeds in a pack. That can be fun, sure, but so many varieties in one pack is a sign of an immature seed line that hasn't been worked enough. I prefer my autoflowers to be worked enough that each pheno in the pack really captures the aspects that the breeder was intending. This is why I recommend Gnome Automatics to my friends and listeners who grow automatic flowering cannabis seeds. Gnome Automatic seeds are not just crossed and released. They are painstakingly sifted again and again, tested in a wide range of conditions, and taken to a level of maturity that each plant will be recognizable by its traits. Traits that were hard-earned, so that you can have your best growth cycle ever. Gnome Automatics became a trusted and loved brand in cannabis over the last 10 years as Mandalorian Genetics, and recently changed their name to Gnome Automatics. The only thing that has changed is the name. Founder Dan Jimmy continues to pour his passion of breeding cannabis into every variety he releases for you to grow. Check out the Gnome Automatics Instagram at gnome underscore automatics to see the impressive plants folks are growing. You can score Gnome Automatic seeds in feminized or regular at your favorite seed provider listed in the vendor section of their website. Farms interested in bulk seeds of more than 1,000 should reach out through the website too. While on the website, be sure to check out the Gnome Automatics shirts and other merch section. If you want reliable seeds, hand-built from effort, expert selection, and experience, choose Gnome Automatics. For decades, Americans have enjoyed cannabis flowers in joints and bongs and bowls. And now, with the normalization of cannabis use increasing across the country, we have the opportunity to enjoy smoking cannabis luxuries that simply were not attainable before. North Coast, hand rolls, blunts, cannons, rosin-infused donuts, and canagars available in the state of Michigan. North Coast focuses on flavor over everything else. Instead of growing their own flower, North Coast goes out into the cultivation community and creates relationships with the best growers working with the best new cannabis varieties available. Surely, heavy THC is a factor, but North Coast focuses on aroma, complex terpene profiles, and taste that continues throughout the entire smoking experience. The North Coast team curates flowers like others curate art. They seek out the best talent, build relationships, helps them take their product to the highest levels, and then buys their well-cured flowers in order to hand-roll them just for you. 
I really like their hand-blown glass tips. And North Coast has branched out beyond Canagars into rosin solventless THCA diamonds and exceptional hash rosin carts for on-the-go cannabis connoisseurs too. North Coast provides you with attainable luxury, offering you an ultra-premium smoking experience at a price that seems reasonable and repeatable. To find out more about North Coast's line of cannabis products, visit their Instagram at northcoast.rolling. That's northcoast.rolling. And when in Michigan, ask for North Coast at your favorite shop, North Coast. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is crop advisor, Brandon Potter. So here we are at the big finish. So um, now we've got plants that have got seeds in them. Um, we have successfully uh, pollinated, and we are uh, so grateful to have reached this point with the plant. Um, you know, chances are by the time somebody is at this point, they have already grown cannabis before. So they know how to successfully grow and harvest cannabis. Um, in your experience, are there any other particular care instructions that are different than growing a regular plant when you're growing for seed? Um, uh, I'm thinking like, you know, different, uh, you know, different nutrients that you would normally use or different or different light or I don't know anything is there anything different when a seed is being grown for excuse me when a plant is being grown for seed than when we're just uh, growing it for smokable usable flower um so generally I would give it more of a veg nutrient type profile through its entire life uh, than if I were smoking for flower and I wouldn't do any type of flushing or anything like that uh, you want the plant to kind of senesce on its own, not because it's being starved of any nutrients. Um, other than that, it's it's pretty similar to growing for flower. Right on. So for a lot of folks, you know, the, the, the trying to figure out when to harvest is one of the more challenging aspects because um, for many people, if they're doing photos, um, you know, people, a lot of people are just looking for uh, the, you know, a 20% ish ish of uh, trichomes that have gone amber. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're a, a more uh, experienced uh, cultivator, you will know how to recognize swollen flowers and the color changes and, you know, the change in the pistols and all these extra things. But really, um, the first rule of thumb that, that most novice cultivators go with is the, is the 20%, um, amber trichomes, unless it's an auto flower, which, which don't really amber up the same way. Um, what do you look for when deciding when to, um, to harvest the seeds because you know we've all gotten seeds that didn't look like they had finished maturing and uh you know for for many seed varieties we're looking for you know a darkened seed potentially with you know striping on it depending on what kind of a plant it is but uh but we've all bought seed packs that that looked like the seeds were not mature and we're like keeping our fingers crossed uh when we that they that they germinate so so what do you look for what in considerations when you're judging when to when to pull the plant down so basically it, i base it on time from when i know pollination occurred as well as i usually dig out a couple seeds and squeeze them see how full they are how mature they are uh, of course they're sacrificing those seeds um, 
But it should also be noted that a lot of seed, the color of seed and the, and the striping on seed is really variety dependent. The, of course, if you have a seed that's supposed to be brown and it's tiger striped and it's it's white, then it's probably immature. Uh, but, you know, the, like the variety freak show uh, has notoriously light colored seeds that are kind of misshapen. Um, but that's all they ever do, even if you let them go forever. Uh, but generally, I, you want to be able to squeeze a seed and have it, you know, be resistant, full of an embryo. When you squeeze it, you'll see a, <laughs> a now dead or dying embryo <laughs> pop out of it. Uh, you should be able to see like the completely formed little radical and things like that. Um, and it should be it should start to be getting a hard seed coat. Uh, it wants the you know do 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 a few tests like that. When the majority of seeds are like that. Uh, you're probably good to go. It doesn't hurt to let it go over. I've heard people claim, you know, it's, you can get over mature seed. I really don't think that's a thing. <laughs> um, the, especially if you're cleaning your seed at the end of it, you might get uh, lighter seed and things like that that will blow off uh, when you're cleaning it. Um, you said that uh, one of the um, one of the things you use to judge when to pull the seeds. You said you know days from uh, pollination. So, um, like, dig into that a little bit more, if you would. Uh, do you are you looking for a particular number of days or a, a, a certain number of days in relationship to um, how long the bloom cycle is supposed to be for the, this particular female? Like, give us a little more on that. Usually, I use the same time frame regardless of the variety, and I haven't I haven't produced seeds on any you know sixteen week varieties, so I can't say it's necessarily true for that. But I think that it would still apply, and that there would even if you pollinate based on this time frame, there would be a mature seed sitting in there for you know ten weeks or whatever. But uh, so I would say two weeks is the absolute minimum to get viable seed if you're trying to do something really fast. Uh, preferably you want to let it go at least four weeks and six weeks is better. So if I can let something go at least six weeks and then start looking at it, sometimes it'll be just completely finished uh, at four weeks and you don't really need that extra two weeks. But um, I I don't think it hurts to let it go over unless you have something like botrytis happening and that'll start infecting and eating your seeds. Uh, there's really no harm in letting it over mature let me push on this a little bit so you said um you know six weeks two two is minimum six would be optimum now uh if if we are going to pollinate our our plant you know a, a week or two into the flowering cycle that kind of lines up with an eight-week plant which is you know give or take that's it's a, it's a pretty common uh bloom cycle so it could be unless you're doing a specialty plant or something that has an especially long flowering cycle that um, you might want to pull those seeds just simply when the flowers are done. Is, is that, um, am I, is that oversimplified? You're saying that you, you might be pulling them earlier than six weeks or what, what are you no, saying? No, no. I'm suggesting that if, if, if you, if you're, if you're, 
plant is going to start to flower and then you pollinate it at like, you know, somewhere between week one and two of the flowering process. And then you said, you know, you want a minimum of two weeks, but more like six weeks for to allow for this, all the seeds to mature. When you add those two weeks and the six weeks, you're at eight weeks, which is like one of the most common bloom cycles for cannabis plants. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sounding, sounding like, uh, in in many or if not most cases um it's not really a different time to pull the seeds as it is just when you would pull the flowers normally yeah completely so it's it'd be very convenient you know if you have like a under branch that you pollinated but you still want the flower from that plant you can usually just harvest them at the same time if i do pollinate something especially if it's later in the cycle of something that i know i'm going to cut down for flower, then I'll pick a lower branch and you can kind of leave that lower branch alive and, and let the seeds mature a couple weeks longer. Say you have an eight-week flower, you pollinate it week four or five, then you want to let it go beyond where you would flower or harvest for flower. Yeah. I, you know, the one time I did this, I intentionally just let it go until, um, uh, until I was a good two weeks beyond the when I would have flowered it because I was so concerned about um, the seeds not fully maturing and ripening and I would have gone through all this you know effort for nothing um, and then so so this this eight week plant I was looking to harvest it at week ten. Um, and then I was surprised it actually just started dropping the seeds onto the ground. Mm-hmm. And I'm all like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I would say that that's probably like the, the most sure sign I'm going to get. But it's possible I was misreading that sign. What what stage are we at when the plant is actually literally dropping seeds into the pot or onto the ground? And I, I mean, that's, you know, it, it depends what varieties you're working with. That's in you know, kind of atavistic trait where it's ancestrally wild cannabis plants will shatter and drop their seeds a lot more readily than the domesticated varieties. Mm. Uh, so if you have a plant like that, yeah, you want to harvest it before it drops its seed. If it's dropping its seed, they're definitely ready. Uh, th- that's really the only that and say if you're outdoors and it's getting rained on, I've seen uh, seed germinating in colas before. Um, so you want to avoid those kind of negatives to letting it go too long, but otherwise there's not a harm to that. And if you, you know, if you collected, had a plastic piece of plastic under the plant and collected those seeds, they'd be fine. Right on. So, so, all right. So, so uh, we're in this situation, the, the seeds are dropping from the plant. Um, if, if some are dropping, chances are your vast majority of them are mature and ready to rock. Um, uh, do you have any best practices for harvesting a seeded plant that is, uh, you know, dropping seeds? Because, uh, you know, certainly we want to, we want to be more gentle with this plant because we don't want to be dropping the seeds all over, all over the room. So, um, you know, I just cut it and put it in a bag, like right then and there. So there's as little motion as possible. Um, what do you do? That's, that's exactly what I would do. Uh, if it's a big area of seed production, I'd lay down plastic before I start cutting plants down and then collect, uh, the fallen seed as well. Um, but yeah, there's, if it's just one plant, I just put the bag under it, cut it right into the bag. Would you walk us through the the next steps of um, take us from where we're at now to um, 
to having clean seed. So what, just walk us through. I know there's a lot of different ways that people do it. And we are talking about somebody who is a first time breeder. So they're, they're not going to have all the sexy gear that we see, you know, professional breeders have. So just walk us through like the baseline of what they're going to do. So what I would do first is uh, just dry the plant material, usually at ambient temperature. You don't want to use heat. If you have a dehumidifier, you want to keep the uh, humidity low. Um, once the plant is kind of crispy, that's when I would thresh it. It's a lot easier to thresh plants that are just like crunchy. Um, if you're trying to save the flower from the seeded bud, that it, generally I don't. I usually just throw it away because it gets really beat up and isn't the best quality. But you could you could absolutely save it, especially for something like cooking. Um, but regardless, I would get it crispy, <laughs> and then you just uh, basically shuck it right off the branch get real rough take those flowers and grind them between your hand uh, you don't have to be too careful at this point the seeds should be relatively resilient if you're crushing them by grinding them in your hand then they probably were dead already <laughs> uh, so do that until it's kind of like a consistent powder seed plant mixture and then you can start to separate that material so I, I always use I always recommend using gloves at this point because uh, anytime I'm touching the seeds, I really want to limit my human oils onto the seeds for the reasons we mentioned earlier about the vital biology that's on the outside of the seeds. You know, a lot of people handle their seeds like they are like in little impervious suitcases, but um, you know, I go a little more gentle than that. Um, what are your thoughts? I definitely touch seed without gloves. During that that process, I wear gloves because grinding plant material in between your hands is not doesn't feel good. Uh, but I'm you know I'm, I've never thought about it how the oil affects the seed coat microbiome. Um, I'm sure it has some effect. I don't know what it would be. Yeah, I didn't actually think about it at all until uh, last episode with Jeff Lowenfels when he was explaining the the bacteria on the inside and outside of the seed that are carried with it where the seed is going. The the um, the research of uh, I think the, the 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 scientist's name was James White, I believe it was. Anyway, yes. um, it's totally changed my relationship with uh, with with the you know, handling the seeds. Um, so, so now that you've kind of like pulverized the flowers in your hands and a bunch of seeds are like, just like raining out of it for you, hopefully, um, you still have got all of this, um, plant material mixed in with the seeds. Um, you know, you know, if you're just producing a little bit, just going at it on a, on a, on a flat service with a, a credit card might be tedious, but it would work. Uh, is there, um, is there a nice best practice you like for removing the plant material from the seeds? For home scale, I do one of a couple things. Uh, I will grind the plant material through a screen sometimes to get it really fine. Uh, when you, Okay, so when you thresh the plant, you have just this pile of uh, whole plant material. You can kind of shake it in a tub and the seed will uh, sink to the bottom. And at that point, you might want to just pick the plant material off the top uh, and get rid of some of the bigger stuff. But then I'll grind it through uh, like a spaghetti strainer screen uh, and make all that plant material more fine. And usually the seed sits on top of that screen. So that's like the first 
uh, sift of plant material. I throw away everything that ground through the screen. Um, then I pour that seed into like a dishwashing tub and I kind of shake it around. And I've seen people do this a few different ways and you can also buy or build machines that use uh, vacuum cleaners to air clean that are more precise, but just for the home grower, uh, just a dishwasher tub, shake it around, move it to one corner, and then I blow into the tub, kind of in the direction of the seeds, and all the light seed and plant material will fly away. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful. You're gonna lose some good seed. Pretty much any air cleaner is gonna remove a little bit of good seed, uh, but the idea is that you're removing, you know, 95% of the trash, uh, and you're leaving yourself with viable seed. So now we're sorting seeds. Um, what are you looking for for seeds that you are going to reject? Once you have like, a, and it depends on what size lot you're doing and what what are you saving? Are you just saving them for breeding? Then I might, you know, have a lower standard for defects and things like that. Uh, but if you're going to give it to people, I'd clean them more uh, precisely. But generally you can, light colored seed is usually pretty obvious. And if you pick up a seed, it just crunches in your hand. It wasn't filled with anything. You just toss those away. Um, sometimes those will survive air cleaning and they'll still be in the batch, especially if they still have uh, plant material attached to them. They might be, have been a little heavier and survived that. Uh, you know, if you know your seed variety well, you'll get a look at what a, a good, mature, healthy seed looks like. And you'll be able to kind of calibrate and look for the ones that don't look correct. So if you have a seed variety that usually has tiger stripes and you have one that's light and tan, uh, you know, I would toss that. Um, but it's surprising, though, because some some seed, especially, uh, you know, if you do selfing or you say you're trying to do a quick breeding cycle and you only let it go two weeks, uh, the seed might look green still and look immature, but it'll still have 70% germination, which could be enough if all you're doing is breeding with it. Mm. I haven't seen any of those seeds yet. That's a, that's a strange thing. Yeah, probably because they're not released that way, right? They're just, they're part of a breeding program. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't really know when, when people talk about curing their seeds, um, I don't usually know what they mean, but we do know that a, a fresh seed taken right off the plant, um, given a little bit of time to dry will then germinate better in a, in a couple weeks than it does on the day that you take it from the plant. Um, but I actually don't know a whole lot about that. Would you speak to this idea of curing seeds and letting them dry and to, and to increase germination rates uh, so that when you go to them, they're, they're actually ready to do their job? Yeah, so the, I think it's two things. One is, is drying it down to a moisture level, level where it will be sh shelf-stable. Uh, for a certain amount of time and that's down to five percent moisture is uh, preferred anything under 10 and in cold treatment is also going to stay alive for years um, there's also another aspect to you know curing or aging your seed a little bit and it's probably uh, post-harvest maturation just physiologically that embryo is still doing things after the harvest um, and it's not quite ready to uh, germinate yet. Uh, if you plant, you know, a week after cleaning seed or something like that, you might get 50% germination. If you wait two to three weeks, that'll go up to 90. Uh, so there's 
something happening, and I think it's beyond just because the moisture content probably won't change that long in that amount of time. So my guess is that's mostly uh, some physiological process within the seed. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's finish up with storing. So now you've put in all this effort, and you've got your first run of seeds, and you're so freaking stoked, and you're gonna you're gonna share them with your friends, and you can't wait to grow it and smoke it. Um, but you got some other stuff you got to do first, and so um, so you're gonna need to store it for a while. Um, what are your best practices for um, for storing seed? Before I get to that, there's just one more thing on sure. the. Uh, I forgot to mention. I have heard some people talk about, uh, you know, some seeds need to, of other species, need to what's called vernalize, where they go through a cold period in the winter before they're able to germinate. I have heard some people report, and I don't have a specific experience with this, um, but they say that they get better germination if they put their seed in, not just wait those two or three weeks before trying to plant it, but they put it in a refrigerator or a freezer for that period of time. Um... I'm not sure if they've compared that just to waiting, and I'm kind of curious to try that uh, sometime. But usually when we're waiting, the seed is in a cold vault. So basically all our seed is getting that treatment anyway. Um, But yeah, so when your seed is is dried down to a good percentage, which should be under 10%, uh, preferably under 8 or so uh, percent moisture, you can put it in uh, either a freezer or a refrigerator. I usually keep my stuff in a refrigerator. Freezer should be okay as long as the moisture level is low, and that's probably best for long-term uh, storage. The problem with either a refrigerator or a freezer usually arises from when you're taking the seed in and out. So you want to have it in an airtight container, maybe with a little desiccant, um, and put it in the freezer, refrigerator. When you take the seed out to access that uh, session, whenever you're ready to grow it, you want to let it um, acclimate to whatever the room temperature is before you open it. Because like, if you take that, say you have it in a little plastic container, and you take that out of the freezer, it's going to be instantly covered with, with moisture. Um, and if you open that before the seed reaches, before it all equalizes in temperature, the same thing will happen to the seed. And that's what will limit the viability over time more than uh, more than temperature, more than um, the air exposure. It's going to be moisture that is a danger to seed. Uh, so we've now we've got them cured and we've got them stored, and we know that we want to bring it back to temperature um, before we open the the container. Especially if we're only going to take out some of the seeds, we don't want to reclose the container with all that condensation that it suddenly pulled out of the air um, because you'd you'd risk either mold or heck, maybe even potentially uh, accidental germination, eh? Yeah, if you're taking out a little pack and you're going to plant all the seed, then you, you know you don't have to wait. But if it's like a stored seed that you're taking a little aliquot out of, you don't want to damage the seed that goes back into storage. Aliquot, there's my word for the day. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a long time. Um, all right, great. So, um, so before before we wrap up and I let you go, Brandon, is there is there anything else that um, you know? 
you've done this process so many times and, and now you're doing it uh, professionally. Is there, is there anything else looking back on this show where you're all like, you're like, actually there's one more thing that the, um, that the new breeder uh, is going to want to know. Is there, is there anything that jumps out in, into your brain right away that, uh, that we may not have covered that we want to go back and, and punctuate before, before we wrap up? There might be a couple points if someone to ask me advice as a new grower. The first thing I would say is know your germplasm that you're working with and what is available before you start designing your program. Uh, don't just cross things because you like the name or whatever. And also expect things to react differently than you think they're going to when you cross them. Um, when you say know your germplasm, break that out a little bit. What exactly do you mean? Like... I- like know, know the two lines that you're working with and have grown them and things like that? I, yes, I would say have grown them and have some, ex- at least have seen the flower. People in cannabis especially will attach to names and have these, I was guilty of this, <laughs> where you, you get these ideas, you fantasize about a plant uh, based on its description or something, and then it's not what it is when you get it. Or you have the plant and you fantasize about a cross because, oh, these will this plant and this plant would make a really good intermediate, but then you cross them and the intermediate doesn't exist. It's totally different. Um, so you need to be flexible and just uh, work with what you have, not, you know, the fantasy of what you have. <laughs> yeah. um, I actually have and, been running into a problem with that myself. I have this fantasy of crossing um, sour diesel to jet fuel OG um, because I like both of those very much. Um, but, you know, having grown sour diesel a couple times, it is uh, so um, likely to both... Um, uh, throw male flowers and express itself with intersex flowers um, that I just, I'm just not willing to, you know, breed with it and cause all these potential pro- problems down the line. And I didn't realize that until I, you know, started growing the sour diesel that we have today and realizing that, that most of the folks who are, you know, working with sour diesel are expecting male flowers and intersex flowers. And, and I'm like, well, I guess I probably won't go down that path because I, I did my research on the germplasm. Yes. It's also surprising. I have some things that are prone to intersex that when you cross them, none of the plants in the cross will be intersex. Maybe Mm. if I took it another generation, it would start causing problems. But if you're just so, I, I don't want to discourage people either. If you're just trying to make an F1, you know, and one of them is intersex, it might solve the problem. And alternatively, I've had plants that were, you know, never produced a male flower. I crossed them. All of the seeds are intersex. Mm. Uh, and neither of the parents seemingly, one of the parents was deep chunk, which I, I'm not aware of intersex problems with deep chunk. And the other was a clone, Lesberado. So I don't know the background of Lesberado, but the clone itself, you know, never had had a problem but every almost every single seed is just almost 50 50 (laughs) right on um right on so do you have anything else to add before we before we wrap up um lastly the 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 last like uh kind of point that i try to impose on newer growers is uh you know consider working with higher populations even if you have a small uh space so this might be breaking plant count numbers for a lot of people. And this is why I would prefer, say, uh, if you're going to regulate gardens, do it on space rather than plant counts. 
because I can, you can fit a hundred plants or more in a two by four, if you have them stunted in little, uh, trays, something like that. And if you're not selecting, especially when you're making cross initial crosses and you're introducing genes where you're just selecting for one major gene, but you want to keep the gene pool, um, broad, like if I'm doing a photo autocross and I'm not trying to select specific phenotypes yet, I'll do those original generations as populations in small tents. So you, you're still hitting large selection numbers, and I still will make especially selections against plants that get diseased and things like that, but you're in a very small space. That's probably not something that's going to happen with the first time breeder, but that sounds like it might be a really good set too, because as soon as you do this once and you have success, you're suddenly going to want to do way bigger sifts so you have more options, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, cool. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for uh, coming on Shaping Fire and sharing your experience. I appreciate it a great deal. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you for having me. So if you want to follow along uh, with Brandon, uh, there are three different places that you can um, uh, you can be in contact with him if you wish. Uh, the first, I definitely recommend following his uh, personal Instagram at Growing Higher. Um, he, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of great plant photos, um, but the commentary that uh, Brandon offers on on this or that project that he's working on um, is engaging and educational. So that's a good thing. Um, second, I'm a big fan of uh, the company that Brandon has started uh, with a couple of his friends, Mycophyte Solutions, uh, which uh, focuses on uh, uh, crop advising um, it, with a regenerative and um, mycology mindset for uh, uh, for agriculture, and and their Instagram is at Mycophyte solutions. And uh, if mycophyte is a, is new vocabulary for you, that's M-Y-C-O-P-H-Y-T-E, mycophyte, mycophyte solutions. And then, uh, and then you can find out more about their actual consulting services and what they can offer at mycophyte.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Lose on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.